Welcome back to Supreme Myths. I am so pleased today to have as my guest, my friend, law professor um, and the Tom Thompson C. Marsh professor at the Sturm College of Law in Denver, Alan Chen. Alan graduated from Case Western and went to Stanford for law school. He clerked for the Northern District of Illinois, he worked for the American Civil Liberties Union, very relevant to what he teaches as a law professor. Um, his articles have appeared in Columbia, Michigan, Vanderbilt, all kinds of places. He's written a number of books, two we're going to talk about. Um, he's an upcoming but forthcoming book called Free Speech and Undercover Investigations, and I can't wait to talk about that. And he also has a recent book, Free Speech Beyond Words, The Surprising Reach of the First Amendment. Uh, and he co-wrote both of those books. Alan, it's great to have you here. Thanks, Eric. It's, uh, it's wonderful to be here. I'm, I'm, I'm honored that you included me in your guest uh, guest list. The pleasure is all mine. I should tell everybody that we, we are both poker players. We've talked about it a lot. If we have time at the end, <laughs> we might have a little bit of a poker discussion, but we'll, we'll, we'll see. I'll, I'll, I'll tell people when that's happening. So if you're not a poker player, you can just drop off the podcast. All right. My yeah. first question for you, yeah. free, your, your upcoming book, Free Speech and Undercover Investigations. And talk to me. What's that about? Sure. So undercover by undercover investigations, uh, I mean, um, investigations to gather information that is uh, uh, on matters of public concern that typically involves uh, deception, some sort of lie about somebody's identity, about who they are, and frequently also involves um, undercover surreptitious recording or video recording. Um, like, the plan, is, like, like the Planned Parenthood ones? Like the, the, like the, the Planned Parenthood like plan Parent investigation, like animal rights investigators use to investigate slaughterhouses. Um, <clears throat> undercover journalists have used these techniques uh, for many years to uh, sure. news stories. Um, but as I as we talk about in the book, um, these are not techniques that are foreign to the law. So undercover law enforcement officers use these same techniques to investigate crime. Um, civil rights testers basically use uh, the same types of deception uh, and even sometimes secret recording to identify uh, 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 racial steering and housing and uh, other types of uh, civil, uh, civil rights violations. Um, unions under federal law are allowed to send uh, their, mem their either volunteers or staff members for the union to get jobs at places uh, for the specific purpose of organizing unions at that workplace uh, without disclosing that they're associated with the union. So it really kind of runs the gamut um, ac across the board and it's been used by the left, it's been used by the right, um, it's used by print journalists and uh, television journalists. Um, and so the, the, the basic uh, premise of the book is that these types of investigations, although very controversial in some circles, uh, are actually in a very important part of what we call the information infra infrastructure of, of free speech. That is, that they, they produce a lot of information and knowledge that would uh, otherwise not come to public light and that that informs the public discourse in important ways. And, and you know, we, have, we obviously talk about the, the limitations on that and what the concerns are. So, for example, in the Planned Parenthood investigation, you know, we say we, we assume uh, that the investigators act in good faith and when they produce the videos or information from the investigation that they don't alter the uh, the videotape in any way that would change the substance or misrepresent, uh, you know, what, what actually went on. So we're very careful to kind of carve that out. Um, and the other can we, thing, can we, can we uh, I'm sorry, can yeah, we pause yeah, sure, there? Because yeah, that, sure. that, that's, that was where my head was kind of going. Yeah. If you had to articulate in advance of a specific hypothetical, what mm -hmm. the limits would be on First Amendment protections for the kind of things we're talking about going undercover 
or having a secret video camera or whatever, a video phone, you know, videoing right. things in, in secret. What are the, what are the, where does the, where does the first amendment dropped off, drop off in that? Sure. sure. So there's a couple of ways that uh, I would draw the limit. So um, first it, it only applies if the information being sought is uh, falls within the definition of a matter of public concern, which is a classic uh, uh, first amendment doctrine. So things that uh, relate to political, social, um, uh, uh, other important uh, issues that are uh, necessary to inform public discourse. So if I go to your house for dinner and I secretly tape you during the conversation um, in a social setting, but it's it's just about a personal vendetta I have against you, that would not be covered at all. Um, well, what if it's Tom Cruise having, I'm using Tom Cruise as a yeah, yeah. example here, um, Tom Cruise having an affair. Is that a public matter of public concern? Tom Cruise having what? An affair. Oh, um, yeah, so, um, I don't think so. I mean, I okay. think I think I think if the president were having an affair or um, some yeah. a public official and that, and that sorry had an influence on their uh, on on their leadership on their decisions uh, on their electability, I think that would be different. So, um, but yeah, there's always there are going to be tough line drawing problems. So, so that's the first limitation. Yeah. Um, second limitation is that um, the space where you, where the investigator is, whether they're talking to the person that they're uh, they're finding out information from or secretly recording them, um, that that investigator has to otherwise be lawfully there, right? So you've been invited onto the property, even if it's under false pretenses, but you, it, it is not like the person who's speaking doesn't know there's a, a human being listening to them or observing exactly. what they're doing, right? Yep. Right, so um, so that's another second limitation. And then, um, you know, this comes from the US, United States versus Alvarez, the Supreme Court decision, um, you can't cause any tangible harm from the actual investigation or the uh, 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 entry onto the property. So physical damage, um, something that goes beyond, or, or something that goes beyond the scope of the, the legitimate investigation. So you, you, you're there anyway, so you go into the restroom and you start you know, recording people uh, in, the, in a private setting. So, um, so those are the main limitations. And, 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 and my argument has been, along with my co-author, Justin Marceau, um, that um, this that, that uh, if if, the, uh, if those conditions are adhered to, that the investigations ought to be protected by the First Amendment. Uh, and you know there have been efforts to criminalize these types of investigations uh, in some states, and so and we've been involved in the the, the debate over that as well. So, so the the, the example involving Planned Parenthood. Uh, yeah. I'm biased here. I have been a worker and volunteer for Planned Parenthood forever. Yeah. I met my wife giving a talk to Planned Parenthood. Um, that the 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 group that did those videos, I believe they edited them falsely, but maybe that I'm wrong yeah. about that. Yeah. I assume that because of that, that video would not have been protected. Right, and so I'm not. I'm, I I don't know enough about the details of that investigation. I know there's a dispute about whether they were altered or not, yeah. but assuming they were altered in a way that misrepresented what they actually were intended to depict, that would also not be uh, protected. Right, so the. Uh, so you, you can edit for length, you can edit for you know um, uh, emphasis, but you can't edit to make make something appear to be the truth, true that it was not true. Right? Sure. Um, sure. Yeah, and so that's a that's a I guess that's a fourth limitation. I would I, I would I would set forth. Well, and, the re and the reason this we think is this is such an important topic is um, uh, especially going into the twenty first century uh, or the quarter away in the twenty first century at this point. <laughs> um, that's how long we've been working on this book. Um, <laughs> The, uh, is that uh, you know we're at a time when there's a lot of distrust about what information we get we you know we yeah. hear whether it's from government institutions or 
the, the media is declining rapidly because of the economic model of the newspaper industry is no longer working for us. And so uh, we, you know, we argue that there needs to be, there need to be other sources of gathering uh, and disseminating information beyond what we've traditionally relied on in the first 200 years of the Republic. This sounds fascinating. Um, I can't wait to read it. And I, I, um, everyone who listens to this podcast on a regular basis knows that I give my guests a rough roadmap, but then we go off. We're about sure. to go off. Okay. Something hit me. I, um, I have a generalized view that there is virtually nothing original to say about virtually all constitutional law issues, but certainly First Amendment issues more than most, just because of the sheer volume of people in law, in political science, in sociology, and other places, writing about free speech in America and so on, and constitutional law in America. And I think when people come up with original ideas that aren't stupid, they don't have to be persuasive. And I'm not saying yours falls in this category, but I've heard other people with ideas that are original, and I'm not persuaded, but they're not stupid. And I'm really impressed by that, because that's really hard to do in con law. This whole issue yeah. and this whole situation feels to me like you've carved out this original niche I, I, I haven't done the research. Am I right or wrong about that? Yeah, I mean, I, 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 I hope that, I think that's true. I mean, there were people who touched on uh, issues that, that related to this somewhat in the past, yeah. but yeah, but I, I do think that it's, um, and maybe partly that's because it just became a politically salient issue also with, um, you know, part of it is the technology, right? So sure. um, it was, it became a lot easier to conduct an undercover investigation once we had cell phone cameras and, you know, miniature recording devices. Um, yeah, you're being uh, too modest there because yeah, um, well, I, I, I don't think this issue is, you know, has been researched by many. But if you if you Google Section 230 and all the Internet issues and free speech issues, that's only been around for that's been around for a very short time. There right. are too many articles, essays, blog posts, books <laughs> to even think about, you know. So, no, right. I think you're being too modest. I think this is a, an important issue. Right. And, and I think it's the work needs to be done. I don't think anyone has really done it well, if at all. So. Um, I appreciate that. Thanks. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's been, it's been a really interesting period of my academic career and it's, it's been really enriching, uh, to, to, to learn, learn about also to talk to people who actually do these investigations. So your book before this, um, free speech beyond words, the surprising reach of the first amendment, that word surprising to me is interesting. We'll get to it in a second. You co-wrote that with Mark Tushnet and Joseph Blocker. Is that right? Yeah. Um, someone just today, uh, um, Saul Cornell told me just today that I need to go talk to Joseph Blocker about a whole series of things and that he and I would get along well. I don't know him, but, um, yeah. um, but anyway, um, and Mark Tushnet is frankly my mentor. <laughs> he and, he and Posner, my, I, I have to mention Posner once a podcast. So yeah. in, this con in this context, he and, he and Posner are my mentors. Um, so my first thing is surprising reach of the first amendment. What's surprising? Okay, so, um, uh, so the, 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 the genesis of this project kind of happened, uh, um, it was interesting because Mark and Joseph and I were all independently working on uh, articles that, that approached the, uh, the same topic from a different angle. And that was, uh, what, what a, uh, why does the First Amendment protect nonverbal speech? And when we say nonverbal speech, we're not talking about flag burning where there's clearly a representation of a political protests from the, from the act. And we're talking about abstract art, um, instrumental music, and 
uh, words of, of nonsense. So, so the use of actual words but that, that, that don't intentionally don't make any sense. And why should those be protected under the First Amendment? Because um, if you go through the traditional models right, of why we protect free speech, uh, it promotes uh, uh, the search for uh, truth. It promotes um, democratic self-governance. It promotes individual autonomy and self-realization. So those are the, the classic justifications. And um, if you go down the, the, the line, so the, I, I wrote mostly the part about the music. Um, how does instrumental music, does, you know, does Bach contribute to democracy in any, any meaningful or direct way? I don't think, I don't think he can really say that it, it does. Uh, does it lead to the, a, a search for truth? Well, not in, the, not in the sort of conventional sense that we think about the search for truth in, in terms of um, political, philosophical, moral truths um, that, that generally require words uh, and some sort of discourse. And then abstract words don't convey anything, right? So they, they're intentionally not, in, in, uh, they're supposed to not convey anything. So um, there's, a, there's a line from uh, Justice Souter's opinion in the Hurley case, the uh, Irish parade, uh, St. Patrick's Day parade case, where he says, um, if, uh, and this is about whether parades are speech. And he says in that, um, that the First Amendment unquestionably shields the paintings of Jackson Pollock, the music of Arnold Schoenberg, and uh, the, the jab Jabberwocky verse of Lewis Carroll, right? And the, there's your setup right there, right? And, and, yes. Um, yes. and he says, unquestionably. And then he doesn't say anything more about it. Right? He doesn't Did say he why. Say anything? He says, Did he cite anything? Yeah, no, he doesn't. And that's the end <laughs> of the discussion. Um, and so, um, and, and, and I think most people would kind of think, well, yeah, that makes, that, that makes sense. But so the, the pursuit of this, this project was, well, let's actually dig deep and see that if there actually is a justification for it and, uh, and how we can sort of, um, fit, fit into these models, or maybe we don't, maybe we shouldn't adhere to any particular model, uh, but still come up with a separate justification for First Amendment protection for these types of nonverbal expression. So I kind of reduced that when I was looking at it. I reduced that to is art. Yeah, that's fine. By, by, by the First Amendment. And, and um, well, a couple questions first. Uh, I have been doing a pretty deep dive recently into the what people say about the original meaning of the First Amendment. Um, by the way, you never find conservatives talking about that. Ever. Um, uh, right. Um, you only find either honest people or liberals talking about it. Um, not many conservatives are honest. I didn't mean it that way. But I meant uh, other than from it, someone starting off with a real intellectual curiosity. You don't find a lot of conservatives doing it because I think what they'll find, and one thing I'll say to you, is I think the original meaning of the First Amendment would likely, you and I don't care about that, but just for the sake of argument, yeah, right. um, would likely say, that as long as there is a public facing public interest reason for denying protection to a particular piece of art under a very very low level of scrutiny then the 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 the, the city the town the state leave aside the federal government for that uh, could do it could do it yeah. you think i'm wrong think, about that no i'm certain i'm i'm absolutely certain that's true so okay. um uh, <laughs> The, 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 you know, the, you know, first of all, you know, the, the, the easiest, the straight, straightest line between uh, the First Amendment today has nothing to do with the original uh, meaning is the Alien Sedition Acts, right? Um, enacted by a Federalist Congress made up of a bunch of people who drafted the Constitution, right? Um, uh, something that I think most people would agree would be a blatant violation of the First Amendment today if, if enforced. 
Um, uh, so the, the, the framers were coming out of an era of British uh, uh, speech law that was focused solely on prior restraints. They just didn't want the government to have control over the printing presses uh, or to be able to pre have to pre-approve expression before it was published. Um, they, they really were not focused on after the fact punishment, whether criminal or civil, um, uh, for different types of expressions where the government felt that, that the speech was going to cause uh, tangible you know, harm to the Even public. Even as to political speech, much less art. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. here, but yeah. so that's what. So again, we're we're deviating here, but uh -huh. it interests me. It interests me so much. I can't tell you how many words I've read by people who want to both have a strong free speech protection that's judicially enforceable, which actually is most of us. You know, um, yeah. how many want that, and also want to be originalists and therefore do somersaults like about the alien tradition. I mean, for non, I have some non-lawyers listening and stuff. The non, the Alien Sedition, Sedition Act basically made political speech a crime, right? Yeah. Okay. Absolutely. How how could the people who make political speech a crime have believed in a strong, robust First Amendment? Right. And then I, I see these 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 academic somersaults, like, well, yeah, but they were just mad at the anti-federalists and anti and Jefferson hated the law, and you know half the population didn't agree with it and all this. But the bottom line is. I think we go with the winners, right? And these law—I don't mean winners, but this, yeah. these laws were Election. passed. Yeah, yeah, right. Do I have this correctly? Do you agree with what I'm saying here? Yeah, absolutely. I, I, I don't—I don't think there's a shred of doubt. Um, um, <laughs> yeah, and sure, the, you know, it's true. Jefferson was a, you know, a, 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 a vigorous opponent of the Alien Sedition Act, and it was partisan, uh, strongly motivated by partisanship. But that's the whole reason we have the First Amendment, right? We don't want the people who are in charge to. Uh, be able to uh, punish the people who are, who are out of out of power in, in terms of trying to criticize them. So um, it's also like the, the Alien Sedition Act is also a virulent anti-immigration law. They're, they're sort of calling for deportation of people because of their speech. Um, right. it's, 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 it's a real piece of work. So I want the folks listening to this to really understand what Alan is saying. And Alan is a free speech expert. And I know a lot about free speech. I haven't taught it in a while. I write about it. What we're saying is there's no legitimate originalist argument for robust free speech doctrine outside of prior restraint. That's my position. That's Judd Campbell's position. I think it's your position. Yeah, I mean, I, and which is why I'm not an originalist. I, mean, I, mean, <laughs> I, 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 I agree well, with the robust free speech protection. Right, and, and of course, that's okay. And it's okay to be an originalist and be against Right. A robust free speech doctrine. That's okay too. What's not okay is to be an originalist and in favor of free speech, of a robust free speech yeah. doctrine, because that's like saying, I love tomatoes, but I hate tomatoes. Right. It's like selective originalism, right? Yeah. Okay. Yes. Fair enough. Yeah. All right. Going back to art for the minute. One moment. Yeah. Um, so I take it, um, my understanding is for most of his career, maybe not at the very end, Judge Bork, Robert Bork, thought that. Only political speech yep. was protected by the First Amendment in a combination of historical and a little bit of public policy type um, rationales. Um, in fact, Bork's most famous law review article, I think, is talks about that topic. It's one of the most famous law review articles in history. Yep. I, I, I take it you think he's wrong, but I take it you're arguing on different battlefields in a way. Right. So I clearly think he's wrong. 
um, in that I don't think I don't think politics can be the only or political speech can be the only meaningful um, uh, value promoted by um, the First Amendment. And um, so one of the things that we spend a lot or I spend a lot of my parts of the book talking about are um, speech actually uh, doesn't just reach uh, people through the cognitive messages through cognitive you know thinking um which is sort of the words promote cognitive thought promote discourse right so um you know i think there's a deep emotional uh, component to speech uh, whether it's verbal or nonverbal um speech can rouse uh you know uh, uh, people's uh, uh you know an anger sadness happiness um uh, excitement uh in in ways that i think um uh, and I think nonverbal expression can sometimes reach those things in a even more effective way than verbal speech. Uh, and so, and I think those are valuable things. And I think those those types of things lead to what I would call an aesthetic truth, as opposed to maybe like a, a you know objective, factual truth. And that th that those things are just as valuable um, in uh, to be protected under the under the First Amendment as as uh, pure political speech. So I you know I go well beyond. Uh, Bork and Michael John, who also sort of right. uh, initially, so that's the other thing. Michael John, Alexander Michael John, focused on purely political speech at the beginning of his career, and then he got pushback. He said, "Well, what about art?" And he has a he comes back and says, "Well, art actually does contribute to democracy, but he doesn't really make a convincing case about why that would be." I mean, you know, he's he's I think he just felt uncomfortable saying, "No, art's not protected, but political speech is." Um, Bork didn't have any problems saying that. Right? <laughs> Um, and yeah, now we're referring there to Alexander Mechelejan, one of the great free speakers. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. All right. Course, so yeah. Yeah. most people listening to this, I would say 98% would say, of course, art is protected by the First Amendment. Of course, you have the right to exhibit your art, whether it's ver whether it's music, paintings, sculptures, whatever. All that's, you know, it may be hard if you're an originalist, or impossible, if you're an originalist to get there. Uh, there may be some institutional concerns about the role of the courts, but overall, of course, art is protected by the First Amendment. Let me direct your attention then to a much more difficult and controversial question triggered, I wasn't planning on raising this, by your statement about kind of um, uh, eliciting emotions and that, and that expression that elicits emotions is protected by the First Amendment. So uh, there was a huge debate on my very, very nerdy to get it for the con law listserv or the religion law listserv or whatever. Whatever it was, it's a bunch of law professors being nerds. Um, and I mentioned that I've been teaching so long <laughs> that when I started teaching in 1991, and I was teaching First Amendment, and the issue was obscenity, which everybody teaches in their First Amendment courses. Um, right. For non-lawyers, obscenity is not protected under current Supreme Court precedent. The definition is very, it's hard to be obscene, but if you're obscene, you're not protected. Um, and I said that back then I would show pictures. Now, this is before the internet, before the, anybody, you know. I would show pictures because otherwise, my, a lot of my students, especially the women, had never seen pornography in 1991. It's just true. 24 year olds in 1991 without an internet, many of them hadn't seen pornography. They'd seen Playboy, but they hadn't seen real pornography. Right. And, I, and people yelled at me and screamed at me and, how can you show these pictures? I'm not, I mean, on the, on the nerdy list, not in the real world. Um, how can you do this? And, and this all of which is linked to my point. There are some visual depictions of things that are the equivalent of vibrators. They just are. And 
so I guess my question to you is where do you come out on obscenity? And what if what is were what is being depicted is really nothing more and nothing less than the desire to to get somebody sexually aroused, which right. is what a vibrator does. Right. So yeah, so there's there's a number of people who agree with this view. Cass Sunstein has basically said this. Um, um, uh, I think Fred Schauer also uh, takes the position that, um, that uh, sexually expressive speech is, is not speech because it's it's like a vibrator. It's, it's its sole purpose is to is for sexual stimulation. And I think I think um, pornography is way more complicated than that. I, I actually think there. Are, uh, I don't think it's like a vibrator. I think it actually creates emotional. Uh, uh, emotional resonance with a lot, a lot of people who consume it. Um, uh, that goes beyond pure. It's not. I don't think you can disaggregate the the emotional from the physical stimulation when it comes to um, sexually explicit expression. So, you know, that doesn't mean I don't think there's some things that go to you know beyond the, the pale and, and can't be regulated under the current obscenity doctrine. Although I think it is, it's, I think it's really difficult to define obscenity in a meaningful yes. way. Um, uh, uh, but I, 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 so I actually talk about this specifically in the book where, where we, we, I talk about the comparing, you know, if, if I'm right, that instrumental music should be protected because it creates this emotional high, right? Or this, emo this deep emotional connection. Um, what, what about, um, uh, uh, the couple things I talk about, what, how do you compare that to obscene or obscenity or pornography? How do you compare it to, um, subliminal speech, right? Subliminal right. advertising, which is also, you know, um, uh, uh, a, a way of nonverbal communication that might, uh, uh, you know, reach uh, reach you, but not in a kind of cognitive uh, way. And so, um, and, and you know, with regard to the sexually explicit speech, I, I, I you know, there, there's all sorts of. Um, I think it's really hard to get into people's minds in terms of uh, uh, what sexually express, explicit expression does for them. And I don't think it's just sexual arousal. I think there's more to Fair it. Than, yeah. So you disagree with the cases that Miller is the key Supreme Court case. You disagree with that case, I think. I disagree. I, well, I think Miller is just too difficult a case to administer. Um, yeah. I mean, it, it's basically, there's not very, I mean. I know when I see it. Yeah. I mean, yeah, it's, it's a difficult uh, thing. You know, Father Stewart, notwithstanding, I think it really is a difficult line to draw. Um, yeah. So. Interest, that's interesting. Having said all of that, just for the non-free speech experts listening, you do have a place in, in your thoughts about this for reasonable time, place, and manner restrictions, right? As, as sure. I mean, obviously, we're not gonna, we can prohibit minors, I assume, from seeing hardcore. Let's say right. children under 12. Right. A law that says no one under 12 can, can buy a penthouse magazine. I assume you're okay with that? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so that the government can limit these things, but not because of their content. That there's some other re thing going on. Is that a fair? Right. Well, I mean, that, that's a regulation because of content, but it has a, there's a special. So this is something I, I've been actually thinking about a lot lately. So I, I think that we have done a disservice in all of constitutional doctrine in failing to flesh out when there's actually a compelling governmental interest. Um, and so there's, this, there's been this reticence to, um, to delve into that. And the idea is, well, if we start saying some things are actually compelling governmental interests, then we're going to have to water down free speech or equal protection, all these other things. I think quite the opposite is actually happening. And I've been sort of thinking about writing about this um, by failing to define what we really mean by compelling governmental interest. It, we, we limit the court's ability to draw distinctions where there truly is a compelling governmental interest. So 
case in point, Masterpiece Cake Shop 303 Creative. Right. right? Um, right. I, the, the, for me, the, those are easy cases in that, yeah, of course, they involve speech. But guess what? There's a compelling governmental interest in prohi prohibiting uh, discrimination against the LGBTQ community. It's like it's 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 it seems like that's the simplest solution without diluting or watering down First Amendment doctrine um, to just say there are some things that are just too important to uh, to ignore. And, you know, I'm sure even this Supreme Court would say that's true about race discrimination. They just don't happen to like the LGBTQ community. Right. Um, um, but I, you and I, I, hold on, you and I agree on that. All of that. Um, yeah. I have a question, though. Yeah. I think it's probably a hard question. I guess. Um, all right. So I hold myself out as somebody who either writes poems for weddings or sings. I'm a I'm a singer. I'm a wedding singer. From, I think the most overrated movie of all time, or one of them. <laughs> anyway, my my family made me watch it, and I was like, what? I didn't. I, I didn't know this about this hidden talent of yours. Yeah, <laughs> my hidden talent of being what a movie critic. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's <singing. laughs> anyway. Um, <laughs> sorry, got lost there. Um, so I, um, I don't think a poet can be forced to write a poem for a wedding, even in, even in race case. Even 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 if I say, okay, I'm a poet. I want to write poems for weddings. I will not write poems for interracial weddings. I think that's horrendously horrible in every way. I don't think the government can make me write a poem for an interracial marriage. I just don't. Yeah. So what we're really arguing about, I think, right, is not compelling interest, but what levels of expression are too huh. crucial for the government to regulate under any circumstances, Maybe, right. except, except the end of the world type circumstances. Right, right. I mean, I mean, the vast majority. You know, the truth about these, this whole line of cases is, uh, uh, um, first of all, they're all, they're all really backlash for Obergefell and Lawrence, right? I mean, yeah, uh, so culture, cultural, and political backlash for those things for the people who who disagree with the outcomes of those cases. Um, but the other thing is, like, the vast majority of businesses, uh, the public accommodations, um, uh, uh, have nothing to do with speech. Like, uh, sure. Like I'm renting chairs for the wedding, right? Um, you know, uh, 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 so I, I I think even if we recognize that there's there's the speech interest here, it's a very very narrow slice of business operations. Um, and, and so and I and I and I think so. I think obviously I'm very sympathetic to anti-discrimination laws um, that protect the LGBTQ community, um, but I'm also worried about the Supreme Court saying, yeah, baking a cake is not speech or Creating right. a website is not speech because I think there are consequences. I think down the road we will regret if that's the way these cases came out, um, which is why I say sometimes, sometimes, not often, but sometimes we maybe maybe we should be deciding deciding these cases on the compelling interest part. I think an I think a essay or article arguing that not fleshing out compelling interest is really dangerous and may, is a great article. Write that article. I'll read it. Well, <laughs> that I'll make you read it. <laughs> <laughs> um, a few years ago, changing subjects, a few years ago, uh, Adam Liptak wrote an article where he quoted some, I, I believe he quoted a free speech person, I forget, talking about, um, quote, the Lochnerizing of the First Amendment. Um, right. And for the non-lawyers in the crowd, uh, there was a case called Lochner versus New York back in 1905, 
where the court, and it's symbolic of the court striking down economic legislation from 1900 to 1936, depending how you count hundreds of laws or even just 80 laws, doesn't matter, a lot of laws dealing with um, all kinds of things about unions protections, minimum wages, overtime rules, and all that stuff. And then 1936, Roosevelt threatens to pack the court, and the court backs away completely from that and has never returned to it under the original rationale. What Adams suggested, or the people he was quoting suggested, was that in cases where, for instance, the court said paying union dues is speech, which, by the way, I don't think it is, but um, and other cases involving pharmaceutical companies and what they can and cannot do, and things like that, that the court has not used the 14th Amendment, which is what the court used back in the Lockmore days, but used the First Amendment to get to commercial, what are really commercial regulations with a speech component, but they're really commercial regulations. What's your view on those cases? Yeah, um, I guess, uh, so most of these criticisms are, are coming from people on the left, and, and I consider myself to be on the left. And yeah. Um, but I'm not quite as alarmed, I think, as, as many of the critics have argued about. Um, okay. and, I, and, and I think it's because of what I just said about, you know, uh, 303 Creative and, and Masterpiece Cake Shop, uh, which is um, there are downsides for these cases coming out the other way on the question of what counts as speech, right? Well, that is the, co the scope of, of coverage. Um, that doesn't mean I agree with the outcomes in every one of these cases, but I don't want them to come out on the on the on the side of we don't need to deal with this because it's not even speech. I think that I think that's actually, as I said, going to lead to consequences we may not like down the road. Where I do think, and I just wrote an essay about this last year, where I do think the Latinization critique is particularly apt is in the compelled speech area. Mm -hmm. um, so the NIFLA case, for example, which I'm a big critic of. Uh, um, if you I published this article in Indiana Law Journal last year. If you take NIFLA seriously, uh, if you take the conservatives' viewpoint about what compelled speech is, or what, what explain what NIFLA is to the yeah, sorry, the NIFLA is the uh, Supreme Court decision um, uphold uh, striking down a California law that required um, is a fairly complicated regulatory scheme, but it re basically it required um, uh, what what are really um, called um, I can't remember the, the, what they call them. Uh, it's it's some euphemism for uh, anti-abortion groups that, that counsel women to try to convince them not to have abortions, but they put themselves out as pregnancy crisis centers. Pregnancy, thank you, pregnancy crisis centers, right? So, um, and the law would have required these pregnancy crisis centers to post uh, uh, something on their walls, and it, it said if uh, there were two classes, there were licensed ones and unlicensed ones. The licensed ones had to say that um, we are licensed to do the following things, but we, um, uh, but um, uh, but abortion is a legal right in California, and you have the opportunity to go to the state here, you know, blah, blah, blah. And the unlicensed the state website centers, of resources for abortion. Yeah, right, right. Um, and the second uh, for the unlicensed clinics who couldn't provide any or could only provide very minimal, minimal services. They had to say we're not licensed. Right. right? Um, which is true. Right. The, yes. um, and so, um, you know, what I, what I, so. And I understand the impulse of the of the critics of the law to say, well, we don't want to put this sign up in our clinic because it disagree, we disagree we disagree with those views. Um, uh, and so, first of all, at least with regard to the unlicensed centers, the the, the idea that they had to post a sign saying that they're not licensed, right? Um, uh, you know, we require doctors and dentists and barbers to post their licenses, right? right. Um, okay, Restaurants. Uh, 
Restaurant. Yeah, restaurant. Restaurants have to put up their sanitation grid, right? You go walk right. around New York City. Do they? Do you some, have have to, some have to put menus in their windows, I think. Yeah, some places. Yeah. And so, um, those are all governmental requirements, right? Uh, they're, they're routinely governmental requirements, and we don't even think about them as as free speech issues, right? Uh, um, and what I basically said, if you take NIFLA seriously, it's, it's the end of the regulatory state, right? Um, uh, you, you, we can't do anything. We can't require anybody to say anything about any anything anyone, even if it's true, right? Um, with regard to the license centers, what I wrote was, um, okay, I can understand why you might not want to post this, but there was a limit, at least on, at least on the on-premises signs, right? It said it has to be, uh, you know, a particular size. The sign has to be posted, right? So there's nothing in the law that prohibits the uh, pregnancy crisis center from drawing big signs around that with arrows <laughs> saying we don't agree with this, right? right. So the so compelled speech is a less of a First Amendment issue if there's a right of rebuttal, right, or the right to sort of disassociate yourself quite easily, right, from that speech. And so, um, so I think uh, you know, Justice Thomas wrote the NIFLA decision, and I, I think I think they're going to continue to go down that road and. That really, that really does spell the end of regulation. Um, if if they if you take that to its logical extreme, and that that does become exactly like Lochner, then what drives uh, that becomes exactly like Lochner. I agree. Yeah. What drove me crazy about that case, um, many things, but the main thing is that on the day that case was decided, where they held that these pretty minimal requirements could not be applied to quote pregnancy crisis centers which are just anti-abortion factories. Right. Um, it was the law of the country signed onto by all the conservatives that um, 24 hour waiting, well, informed consent requirements yeah. um, had to be given to women seeking abortions. And informed consent is one thing, but this wasn't informed consent. Yeah. This was abortion's bad, childhood is good. Right. And they had to do that. <laughs> and that compelled speech was constitutional and yeah. the inconsistent, fully constitutional. And yeah. the inconsistency between those two things is yeah. mind boggling. to me. Yeah. I mean, I think it's Breyer, I think was the dissenter in that case. He, yeah. he does a good, he's, he does a good job sort of uh, pointing out the hypocrisy in those two. two I, I mean, that's viewpoint that. discrimination by the Supreme Court of the United States. Yeah. <laughs> that's effectively what that is. All right. A um, couple things uh, more general than free speech or different than free speech. Um, first of all, you've known me a long time. You know I am a core legal realist. Um, and, uh, and that's a nonpartisan critique. I think in my lifetime, the justice who was the least um, affected by his priors, the Supreme Court justice was least affected by his priors was Justice Souter. And even he was, couldn't get around them all, you know, um, but he was the least. Everyone else, um, Ginsburg always voted liberal, Alito always was conservative, Kennedy, White, Souter, Blackman, Stevens all voted moderate because they're all moderates. It's not a coincidence, uh, and so on down the line. I, I, I've never asked you this question. I don't know where you stand on the legal realist. So I, have, I have two questions. Where do you stand on kind of the legal realist critique, just of the Supreme Court? I'm not talking about judges in general, just the Supreme Court. Uh, and then my second question is, what should a litigator do, if anything? And maybe the answer is nothing. Maybe it's worthless with that critique. Right. That's a great question. So, um, uh, so when you say, so there's, I want to clarify what we're talking about. When you talk about legal, legal realist critique, that their politics drive their 
legal legal decision making? Is Not that... just politics, ideology, which is broader. Right. Okay. Experiences, um, references. Right. Can, can I just make that point really Can I just really make put a meat yeah. on that point? Please. As I've said before, um, the only reason we have Lawrence, Romer, Obergefell, and Windsor, the only four cases in American history, right? Um, well, one of those O'Connor joined, but I, I, Lawrence, I guess. But the other three were five, four cases. And the only right. reason we have those is because Justice Kennedy had an experience that affected the rest of his life, which is his father was a very prominent lawyer and his father had a best friend. And that best friend was like an uncle to Kennedy. That best friend was gay, had to be in the closet in the time period, ended up being a dean of a law school, still had to be in the closet. Kennedy saw the indignity and the horribleness of that, which is why Obergefell is written in terms of dignity. Um, and that's not legal. That's just Kennedy had a real formative experience uh -huh. that gave him a gay rights perspective that none of the other conservatives really had. Right. And that's, that's not I'm an right. ideological fact. Right. 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 That's, that's a life experience. So I think so life. So a legal realist would say Posner would have said, you look, you look at politics, values, ideology, and experiences and even collegiality sometimes collegiality drives certain things but none of sure. those things are legal <laughs> yeah yeah so are, are you trying to get me to say court the court's not a court uh no no because <laughs> then you'll get all kinds of people mad at you and you don't want to do that Go ahead. <laughs> um uh, so i've heard um so uh so what so I, i'm trying to get so what what is the critique then because i think i think it's those I think it is it's obviously true that those things influence judges, the Supreme Court justices. Well, I'm saying more than influence. I'm okay. saying the, the body of constitutional law that this country cares about, not the cases they don't care about, that yeah. comes out of the Supreme Court is driven by ideology, values, politics, experience, not right. text, history, right. structure, right. tradition, precedent. Well, I think they, they could come from all those things, right, including Text structure history and like so, um, so you 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 view history and structure and text through your own priors, right? Through your own life experience. Um, um, I mean, I don't. I, it's getting harder and harder to say this, right? But I, okay. I, I and I, um, I, I wrote an op-ed in I think the Denver Post or the Rocky Mountain News after Bush versus Gore came out, and I said, you know, part of my job as a constitutional law professor is to try to convince my students that there actually is something there, there, right? That uh, that there is a doctrine, sort of a, a, a doctrine of constitutional law that has some some integrity, uh, that it's not all politics. And you know, my op-ed in, uh, in in Bush versus Gore said basically, and the Supreme Court just made that much harder to teach, right? Um, right. Now the last twenty three years of experience have made it even harder to teach, right? I think, <laughs> that, um, and, and uh, the current generation of students, I think, is like are looking at the court as thinking, yeah, well, maybe it is just all politics, right? And and I. But I think it's more nuanced than that, right? I, I do think that um, uh, you you do still occasionally get like a Neil Gorsuch who has, so there's a good example, right? Gorsuch and his experience with um, uh, Native Americans um, uh, voting with the liberals in the um, tribal uh, rights cases, right? So um, uh, I think he thinks that he's adhering to the text structure and history of the constitution and being an originalist, um, but he's viewing it through his lens of um, actually knowing something about Indian law, right, um, uh, and and having lived out in the West uh, for much of his life, so um, I don't think that's a bad thing. You know, I, I I don't think it's 
I think it makes it interesting. Uh, I think those are the most interesting things that are happening right now in the court, which so is what let somebody, you, yeah. Let's take Gorsuch for a second. Because uh, okay. of course you wrote Bostock too. And everybody, people come at me all the time with Bostock. And I keep saying, well, first of all, it's a statutory interpretation case. Yeah. Uh, most of my critique is not about that. But but yeah. second of I, all, yeah. but second of all, um, Gorsuch may very well be pro-gay rights on an ideological basis on all issues unless it collides with religion. And then guess what? Right. He's not. Right. right? Yeah. There's nothing well, in law yeah. about that. That's just his. Uh, but let's go back to Native Americans. Yeah. Um, so why can't Gorsuch start that opinion? by saying something like the plight of Native Americans in this country, X, Y, and Z. I have experienced this personally. It's had an enormous impact on my life. And of course, what I'm about to say about the open-ended nature of treaties and texts and precedent, plus we, we're not bound by precedent anyway. So, you know, is, is filtered through that, that experience. If he said that, I think the American people would go, yay. We finally have an honest justice. Or if Kennedy said, I know my views here might surprise some people, but let me tell you about an experience I had that I think is universal. Right. And, this, and this dignity, this lack of dignity I saw in this man is true for millions of Americans. That yeah. goes to what the 14th Amendment is supposed to protect. Why can't they do that? <laughs> um, why can't they do that? Because I think that, that they would be... I think they would be attacked as uh, taking into account things that they're not allowed to by take whom? into account. Attacked by whom? Yeah. Whoever right. doesn't like the outcome of the decision. <laughs> right. But they're still, exactly. No, that's the right answer. Bing. Right. Yes, I agree. But they're still going to be attacked by the people who don't agree with the answer no matter what. So the question right. is, at least the person then attacking the decision could say, I respect Justice Gorsuch's honesty and transparency. I disagree with what he's doing. Right. And then we can have a real debate. Right. Anyway, yeah. So, I mean, um, yeah. I, I don't, I, yeah. I think I think all the justices try to maintain a mystique of law uh, and right. something you can do. They do. Like they do. Point. That's going to end in you a few years. You might even call it a supreme myth, right? Um, that, well, and, well, that's um, going to, that, so, so that's going to end in a few years if this court keeps doing what it's doing. It will. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I think the, the dissent in Dobbs comes very close. They even yeah. say this decision is different only because there are new people sitting in, on the bench, yeah. which is what Siegel says about all constitutional law. Um, that, that I think if this court's not careful, I think we're heading in that direction. One more question. But you, I, I think I follow constitutional law as closely as anybody, but I rarely, I rarely get involved in actual litigation of it. Um, I used to sign and write and do amicus briefs. I don't. I decided not anymore um, for personal reasons. Um, but you are a litigator. Like you actually go. You still go to court. You're a real lawyer. I really respect that about you. If you forget the Supreme Court for a second, if you get a new First Amendment case in a district court in Colorado, or, or a better example might be in the um, Tenth Circuit or whatever circuit. Um, what's the really the first thing you're going to do? You want to know, and, and, and that district court judge, and, and and everybody agrees on the facts. It's just a legal issue. What is the first thing you're going to do? See who appointed the judge, and see, and and, and what's the second thing and you're see, going to do? And, and read the, and read the judge's opinions about you know, particular Okay, issues. so yeah. that so for the law students, I have some law students who write me. For law students listening, that is exactly right. Um, you know, Alan, right. back in the day, I worked for Gibson Dunn and Crutcher like a zillion years ago. 
1986, long before computers were really a thing. That's how old I am. And in 1986, at Gibson, Dunn & Crutcher in Washington, D.C., they had files. They had files on issues, like, you know, hugely right. complex commercial issues, tax issues, and litigation files. And they had files on judges. <laughs> and the first thing you do when you got the case and knew the judge was, go look at the before you even look at the case, you look at the judge. Of course. Doesn't that say something important? Absolutely. I mean, so this is the legal realism about the practice of law, right? Um, yeah. Uh, so this is something I say, I say um, I every time I teach federal courts, which I'm teaching this semester, um, if, you, if you're not forum shopping, you're committing malpractice, right? I mean, right. Um, yeah, the, the law abhors forum shopping, but, you know, lawyers don't. Lawyers do it all the right. time. Of course, it's, of course, it's important who, who you draw, which 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 jurisdiction is going to give be at least more open minded about uh, hearing the merits of your case or deciding that you have a a, a plausible legal claim, right? Um, of of course, that's relevant. We like to think that oh no, I wrote this incredibly persuasive brief, um, and you know maybe I did, but you know if if to a different audience, it might not have been persuasive. So um, yeah. those those are important things to consider for. Uh, any practitioner, even on like t TV dramas about law, right? you see the, the the character saying, "Oh, I drew Judge So and So. What do you know about him or her?" Right? Um, right. And right. They'll, they'll gossip in the hall about right. But so that's realistic. That's it's realistic. Totally realistic. That, that happens. Um, yeah, you find out from other friends. Uh, good, what what was your experience before this judge? So, Alan, I um, I came into Legal Academy in 1991 as critical legal studies was dying. Um. The two movements in American history that take the position that appellate judges in the open spaces are mostly just imposing their ideologies on people um, starts in the 1930s, really, um, and then gets picked up again in the 1960s, uh, 60s and 70s. And then there are, there are a healthy number of legal realists today. Maybe we're all legal realists, though I don't think so. I don't think anyone. I've done all the reading. I really have, I swear. I have not really seen yet a what I would call a persuasive kind of sophisticated the account of, of, of how we put both of those things together. On the one hand, we'd like to think law matters and, and we like to think that there are real constraints. On the other hand, who the judge is is crucially important to whether you're going to win or lose. I'm not smart enough to do all that. I can just describe it. I can't. I've yet to see a really someone smarter than me wrestle with that in a way that's persuasive. So I think it's a hard question. I don't think anyone's really, do you think people have come to grips with that conflict? No, I mean, and I, and I do, you know, most of my practice is in the lower federal courts and I, I do think it matters a little less, especially at the district sure. court level. Sure. Right? I've, I've had some, some of my greatest victories before Republican appointed district, federal district court judges. Mm -hmm. I think as you go up the, the hierarchy, right? It becomes more and more important. The ideology becomes more and more important, and yeah. um, so I, I do think, I do think there are a lot of judges out there who are trying to, trying to apply the law in good faith. Um, and, oh no, and it's I, not I, just about their priors. Yeah, yeah. Don't get me wrong. I think most lower federal court judges do, at least prior to Trump, do try to um, right. apply the law in good faith, and even most Trump judges do, frankly. Some right. don't, but most do. Um, uh, no, but 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 then we get to the open space, right? And, and that's where. Okay, uh, one last question. Um, okay, should law? So you write op eds, mm -hmm. you litigate, 
and you do other public facing things like this. <laughs> um, I do a lot of public facing things. I want to ask you a very specific question. You've been right. teaching for many years, so have I. If one of your students wanted to know your your priors, your experiences, your politics, they could find it in about 90 seconds, maybe less. They wanted to find mine, they could find it very, very quickly. Right. What do you think we should do with, and that was not true in 1991. When I started teaching, that was not right. true. They would have had to have yeah. read a law review article maybe, or, right. you know, I mean, it's much more difficult. This has right. evolved in my time teaching. What do we do with that? Do we hide them? Do we, do we acknowledge them? Do we do a little combination of the two? I'm still, I, I don't know the right answer to this. I've never met a professor who thinks they, they know the right answer to this. They only yeah. have instincts about it. What's your instinct about this? Um, I, I think I err on the, on the side of uh, wanting to be upfront about my priors um, mm -hmm. and, and sort of be fairly candid that I have a particular view about this particular area of law and uh, but that I welcome you know reasoned engagement and criticism right and that's you know that's partly what we're trying to teach the students to be able to do um, uh, and you know and as you pointed out like I couldn't hide it if I wanted to right I mean so I mean right um, you know I'm on Twitter I'm, you know I, Right. Uh, I, I do lots of public appearances. I write stuff and I litigate. So, yeah. um, I think I think it's almost always better to to be upfront about your own um, ideological priors and your own life experiences that might influence the way that you view uh, certain types of law, and and to tell them that that's okay that you do that too, right? Um, um, right. But you still have to learn how to argue within the framework yeah. of. You, know, you still have to know the test, right? You still have to know, uh, be, be able to use uh, analogical reasoning. So, so what's fast? So, so I've asked this question to a lot of folks on this podcast and elsewhere. Uh, we had a symposium about this question, kind of at Loyola um, a while mm -hmm. back. Um, and I do think your answer is the majority answer by far. There are some people who still say no, you know, hide them, be objective, yeah. try to, not be objective because you can't be, but but. But, but, but here's what I, for those people who do what you do and what I do, which is disclose our priors. Right. I do want to, this wasn't, I didn't prearrange this, I swear. <laughs> if you think that's right for us, hmm. it should certainly be right for judges. You know, yeah. that, in, in other words, when I teach, when I, when I teach affirmative action, when I teach Shelby County versus Holden, which hmm. I think is one of the biggest sins by far in jurisprudential history. Right, Dred Scott, Shelby County. Like, I think in terms of legal reasoning, Shelby County's worse. Obviously, Dred Scott's worse in terms of morality. Right. I think Shelby County's worse in terms of legal reasoning. Um, so I tell my students, I'm going to present this as, as objectively as I can, the best way I can. I'm not objective, and I doubt I can actually teach it objectively. Here we go. And then, and then I always say, you get extra credit if you argue with me. This is, this is the mm -hmm. moment when I'm most strident, where you get the most credit if you argue with me. Right. I think that's how Justice Gorsuch should start his Native American opinions. I came into right. this, you know. Yeah. Convin we think it's right for the convince classroom. me think... my experience is wrong, right? Or convince yeah. <laughs> yes. Uh, something yeah. like that. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. I, I want to do, does that maybe move you a little in the direction of maybe they shouldn't do that? Ginsburg should stay. I'm a right. feminist. I've right. fought my whole life for gender equality. Of I mean, course I'm going to, you know. But don't you think like us that they we all know that right we know we know what the priors are so you know people i you know i know people who work uh, having who do a lot of supreme court litigation 
you know, they shape their briefs around, you know, for a long, for many years, all, all my friends who do abortion rights litigation were, were, were focused on an audience of one. It was Anthony Kennedy, right? So, right, of course. Um, and, you know, they, you know, they you know, cite, cite the justice back to himself or herself, if that'll help you, right? Uh, um, so I think, I think it happens. I think lawyers do it already. I, and I think they do it based on the public knowledge about the justice's backgrounds. I don't think they, I don't think they necessarily need the justices to tell them that. I'm sorry if you can, get, can give me three more minutes on this topic. Yeah, it's like, you know, this, this topic is so near and dear to my heart and your yeah. answers are so thoughtful that I'm so, but I think here's where there might be a difference. I haven't thought through this. This might be a dumb statement. Uh, I don't want to die in this ditch, but here's where I think it does matter. So a lawyer stands up to argue a Native American case in front of the Supreme Court today. And you know you have three liberals, you're probably going to win. You might get one another vote, maybe. And you have Gorsuch. <laughs> Almost certainly. Maybe not in every case ever. And I don't think Justice G there was one of the liberals who didn't vote well in Native American cases. But generally speaking, that's, that's okay. So the lawyer could conceivably stand up in a world of honesty and truth and say, it's interesting about Justice Gorsuch's personal experiences with Native Americans that we all know about. I've had similar ex personal experiences, or whatever. Um, right. we, need, we need to keep all that in mind as we go through legal materials that are going to leave the court discretion. These legal materials will leave the court discretion. There's not a slam dunk answer to any case that goes to the Supreme Court. Um, Shelby County had a slam dunk answer. It's one of the few. Right. But anyway, the other it's direction. The wrong one. Yes, right. yes. Um, then we can have a real discussion. Like we could really talk about whether it's unions and free speech. And Alito hates unions. Everyone knows that, you know. So, but we could, why do you hate unions, Justice Alito? Tell us why you hate unions and maybe we can soften you on, but we can't have those discussions. I think we should have those discussions. Am I wrong? Uh, I don't think you're wrong, but I think we can, I think we're having them. I mean, I think that, I think people, you know, everybody knows like that, Alito is con and Thomas are concerned about discrimination against evangelical Christians, right? And so right. that they come into it coming then. So if I'm going to argue a case involving establishment or, or free exercise, I'm going to be focused on knowing, going into that, knowing that that's their perspective, right? Okay, fair enough, fair enough. Yeah. Um, I recommend all of your work to everybody. Um, I'm excited about this new book. Um, Thank you. Uh, uh, on, on free speech and undercover investigations, which I think has been underwritten and which I think is really interesting. Um, and thank you so much for coming on. Thanks. It was my pleasure. It was great to chat with you. And uh, hopefully the next time we chat, we'll, it'll be over a poker table. I hope so, Alan. We've been trying to do that for COVID got in the way of that. Thank yeah, you. COVID thank you. really screwed that up. Yeah.